Welcome to DFI Podcast, where we go deep on Web3 infrastructure and services. Today, we're joined by Derek from Blocklist. Derek, thank you for joining us today. How's life? Hey, man. Doing good. Thanks for having me on today. Well, we're super excited to chat with you and learn more about your project, uh, both because you know we've all spent a lot of time in the decentralized infrastructure space, but also I think the work you guys are doing at Blocklist is very innovative, and you guys are hopefully going to be one of the kind of the core technologies powering a lot of the next generation of use cases. But maybe the, the best place to start is just to get a little bit of your background and maybe just kind of tell us, you know, where you got started in Web3 and, and how you got here along your journey. Yeah, for sure. So I'm one of those old school internet people. So I don't I don't really like the Web3 moniker because I think we've been distributed uh, since the start. And uh, so I started in like 95, 94. Um, I was trained by US West, Ma Bell, uh, on early Linux versions. I remember getting my first uh, Debian 2 CD in the mail. Um, pretty young then, but uh, really, you know, I just kept up with it. And uh, over the, the course of the next couple decades, I'd work for companies like eBay, PayPal, Walmart. Um, if you've used an LG Electronics WebOS smart TV, uh, I've worked on that platform as well, doing performance engineering mm. and really just running the gamut across uh, the entire tech stack. So mobile clients, servers, um, with the last really five to 10 years focused on infrastructure and platform. And, and that's really where I started to get into crypto and Web3. I had launched my first crypto coin back in 2014. It was a Litecoin fork, uh, but there wasn't really like, you know, a lot of use cases for crypto other than trading e-commerce at the time. Fast forward, Ethereum comes up and now we have programmable money and it was cool, uh, but still, you know, not a lot of... A, uses just popping up. So 2017, 2018, it really started to kind of pique my interest. I was working at Fortune 100 Walmart at the time um, and really just thought that it was time to, to move out, take all of the infrastructure uh, knowledge that I had gained over my, my last two decades and really kind of bring them to Web3 and focus specifically on distributed systems and sovereignty. Um, crypto uh, obviously plays into that, being able to monetize a system and being able to have participants actually feel some kind of ownership of that. And so a lot of those were like key items that jazzed me about what Web3 was and what it was becoming because people could actually start to own things. You know, if you've participated in the stock market, you know how complicated it is to buy your one share um, of something and you're completely disconnected from a company, even though you get some weird proxy vote, uh, you know, notice to go do. But, but really with Web3, you can own the project. And if there's somebody out there inspiring you, um, you know, better than a Patreon, you can actually just hold old stock and what they're building. So that really kind of just, you know, flung me over into this world now. And I've been doing it for the last uh, three, three and a half years uh, full time and just love it. Brilliant. And so since uh, since joining, you had worked some time with Akash Networks. Is that right? Before joining Blocklist? Is that yeah, how you're absolutely. So yeah, so Akash Network, uh, I left Walmart uh, Labs is, is where I was working on their GraphQL uh, for holiday season uh, 2020. They were, you know, looking at like 1.5 million transactions per second. So having had that knowledge at scale, um, really went head deep into a, to a, a typical infrastructure company working with Kubernetes, but augmented by blockchain. Um, over the, the course of two years though, um, really my vision for what I thought Web3 should be or what would be an executing compute layer kind of morphed uh, from that original plan. Um, and I really set out with a bunch of friends to create Blocklist, which would be this new modular execution layer where a developer could pick and choose things that they would want to use. Very cool. Um, 
So tell us a little bit more about Blockless and what it does. Yeah, absolutely. So Blockless in a, in a nutshell is a function as a service layer, much like AWS or GCP. Um, it's, it's a Lambda, uh, kind of like Vercel, you run it and it executes and it finishes. Um, but really the core pinnacle of what's happening with the technology is that it takes what you would normally attribute to a blockchain. And instead of using state or some kind of mechanism, each execution has a consensus uh, scheme around it. And the developer can choose what that consensus scheme is, whether it's PBFT, a raft, a simple aggregation, or like a traditional Web2 platform, just give me the fastest, closest responder uh, to this. So instead of waiting for a level one blockchain to close or waiting for a level two blockchain to close, we actually close block time on every execution of a developer's application. So the DAP is in charge of its own block time. So can uh, can an adapt that uses blockless uh, be connected to like multiple L1s or L2s at the same time and execute on like multiple chains at the same time for like a specific application or say like you've got multiple users doing the same thing in different locations, right? Uh, and if so, like how does that work on like the crypto side in terms of like if assets are being transferred or if they're staking or or something with the financialization? Part. Yeah, absolutely. So, so you can think about Blockless as being the bridge itself. So because it has a um, compute finality layer built into it and all of the transactions are signed by each node, especially if they're participating in a consensus scheme like PBFT, then the system itself will use that as proof or evidence for an L1. Um, and then we do an entire election scheme. So no specific node is actually returning those results back to the L1 specifically. Um, it's all random in this pseudo secure system. And that way we can actually communicate with multiple L1s. Um, we also employ some risk zero ZK uh, stuff as well. So we can kind of add ZK receipts on top of a consensus receipt uh, as well and make sure that we're doing multiple layers of, of consensus and finality be before moving that to an L1. Very cool. Uh, could you maybe just for both my understanding and, you know, the audience understanding, just kind of turn that into like a concrete example of a use case that someone might use Blockless for? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, one of the easiest use cases I think we think about right now would be DeFi bridges. And so normally what happens with the DeFi bridge is you probably have most of your security in a Cosmos based system using IBC because that's built into the protocol to actually do the transfers. But what you still lack in IBC is you need operators and operators need to agree on providing bridges to users. So in the blockless instance, because the network itself is a consensus based execution environment that's off chain. We don't have to maintain state, so we can take any internal state into the system. Then we can do the operations and we can have either a zero knowledge receipt on it, or we can have a consensus-based receipt like a traditional L2. And then those uh, coin exchanges would be secure within the system and then committing back to both L2. So we don't need a separate hypervisor or some kind of Oracle system that's then checking the bridge 
to ensure that the bridge was accurate because the bridge mechanism itself was done in consensus. And it could be n number of nodes as well. So if you're comfortable with, with seven nodes, if you're comfortable with 13 nodes, if you want 21 nodes, um, we can increase the number of nodes that would actually be participating in simulating the bridge transaction and then committing that using uh, multi-party computation. Interesting. And Derek, is there a future where sort of for these decentralized technologies, is there a need for sort of websites and web applications to be able to run on decentralization tech on Blockless, or is it a different paradigm of technologies altogether? Yeah, no. So one of the one of the really cool things that we're kind of finding good footing with, especially with how a system like Blockless works, is because we're generic enough to run any kind of computation payload, we can actually serve static websites or dynamic websites, uh, much like you you know you see currently going on to IPFS or Arweave. Um, we have a little bit of a twist to that though, but because the protocol actually runs the distribution of the website and the execution of the website we can actually couple in things like DAOs. And so, so now the current problem with a lot of infrastructure is that a, a DAO still has to have some kind of account at a hosting provider and that hosting provider then needs to be linked to this DAO in some way and somebody's still securing exactly what that DAO does. But on Blocklist, because everything runs as a smart contract in outside on, on an L1, that smart contract can trigger multiple things, including multi-party signatures uh, for things like deployments or rollbacks. Um, and so now the DAO is actually autonomously in charge of what's happening on our system with the software. So they can uh, go ahead and distribute a new version uh, of that software and then vote on rolling it back if they dislike it. Um, if multiple parties want to sever and host a specific version, that's completely possible uh, as well. So we really kind of leave it up now that the application is is somewhat autonomous. We're calling it napping or ne network neutral applications. Um, <laughs> like and, and really, yeah, we want you to write an application for block list. We have abstracted APIs for you. Um, and then let us worry about the L1 coordination uh, behind the scenes so that you can really focus on building good software, good experiences, and stop wasting a lot of time figuring out the infrastructure ins and outs um, of L1s. And, and that includes all the middleware, the APIs, the front ends. Um, you know, we, we've accounted for as much of that end-to-end -end application architecture as possible so that everything can live in a distributed uh, dynamic uh, storage archive using IPFS, using L1s like Ethereum, uh, and then bringing it all back on our homogenous compute network with all of those items. Very cool. So um, this is like the first time I'm hearing a lot about Blockless before. So I'm going to ask some questions that might be a oh, little basic. Sure. But um, how would you like, you know, compare yourself to um, companies that run like RPC nodes and make APIs available and do, you know, maybe have a, some or a lot of the functionality that Blockless has, and as well as like you know centralized um, providers uh, like Alchemy or Infura. Yeah, for sure. So the biggest contrast between us and all of these other projects is that we're really driven on trying to ensure that operators are revenue positive. So a lot of times operators may only get a portion of staking operatives or some kind of minor participation award. 
when you move into some of these compute networks, it's really kind of hard for them to grab a large market share for a provider to actually, or an operator to get monetary value out of that. And so what we're really specialized in is the selection and the distribution of work amongst our operators to ensure that they're getting a fair play field. And that's that's where we really kind of see a good marrying point of something like Eigenlayer or Restaking Collective, uh, where they need a large number of operators and they don't want to penalize those operators because otherwise they won't participate mm -hmm. again, you know, if they get nicked for something um, that's minor or trivial. And so really kind of focusing for blockless on how we distribute and isolate the work and ensure that the, the node isn't overloaded. And then at the same time, because of our architecture stack, we're not as specific as some where you don't need to use a special language, um, but we're not as generic as others where we're just launching some Docker containers. So we have a managed WASM VM interface that runs on every platform. So you write your software run once, excuse me, write your software once, excuse me, and then you distribute it everywhere. And our node platform pretty much runs everywhere, including in the web browser. So we do envision in the future, people will just open up a, a tab on, on Chrome and become node operators. There won't be a need to install software any longer to participate in a compute network. Super cool. I saw on your website that, um, that you were, uh, that, that Blockless was helping a company do some uh, AI inference and some AI workloads. I'd love to hear more about that. And also, you know, we can add a second question on what you think about the intersection of AI and crypto. That seems to be a hot topic these days. Yeah, for sure. So we have been working with a few different AI vendors and really what we've built into our, our solution is an inference pipeline that runs a, a standard inference across the board. So we've worked really hard with CPU inference, especially to make sure that we're not just locking out a bunch of equipment. Mm -hmm. And again, because we feel that, you know, the future is actually repurposing a lot of this equipment that will soon become junk, um, you know, really trying to focus on how we can get the most out of it. So we do text to speech inference, um, we do visual identification, and we can even do stable diffusion. Uh, we run them all on the CPU with under two gigs of RAM. Uh, and a lot of this runs in WASM as well. So we've, we've beefed up our WASM engine to be multi-threaded. Um, and we can do speech to, or yeah, speech to text, excuse me. Um, you know, the JFK speech, I think we can render that in about 27 seconds, um, regardless again of, of where we're at. This is, we're not paying attention to, to what the, the, the platform or the, the software is underneath. Um, we're just running nodes on really small instances of Docker with like one gigabyte of RAM, one gigabyte uh, or one VP, excuse me, let me go back. We're running the Docker instances with one gigabyte of RAM and one VP CPU um, and really seeing really good results as we kind of continue to beef up the inference that we have. Um, we do plan on bringing kind of what you would know as accelerated inference. But the problem with accelerated inference and to kind of go back to your, you know, the intersection of blockchain um, is accelerated inference is really hard to come to consensus about because the accelerated inference requires multiple levels of similarity across the entire inference pipeline. So something as simple as the GPU, uh, the library that's creating the random noise, or even the predictor engine um, can create different results out of the exact same prompt or the same seed as well. So they don't all start with the same noise. They don't all produce the same 
uh, inference result when they denoise uh, whatever it is they're trying to work on for that matrix. So that's really kind of where we're seeing kind of um, our bread and butter come in is, is really working on trying to find congruency between disparate systems such as Apple MPS or metal, metal shaders um, and PyTorch, um, which it really mm -hmm. leans into NVIDIA CUDA uh, today. <clears throat> so that's really where I, I think that we'll see the next revolution in, in blockchain. Um, a lot of companies or teams are starting to work on inference within the blockchain itself because it would standardize then all of the libraries um, that people are using across the board. And so really, I think maybe that would be kind of the, the next segment is we've seen a lot of crypto curves built in uh, to, to chains, you know, um, as we call them, native curves or precompiles. Um, I don't, you know, put it past that some change will eventually have precompiled inference engines um, built into them so that your smart contracts can call uh, directly into the inference engine instead of needing to do some weird VM cast. Question for you on user experience. And I think you, you know, I may have talked about this before, but I've, you know, Ishan also, and I also kind of talk about this yeah. frequently, which is uh, folks coming into this new technology that might have been traditional developers in the past. One interesting uh, question is payments, you know, making it as, as easy or frictionless as possible for folks to get into to these new technologies. Do I have to download MetaMask? Do I have to convert some currency and things like that? Do you have any opinions about how you want to smooth or how you want to provide that sort of experience for your users? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I think it's it's funny now being three years into the journey. The one thing, especially for payments that I've learned is is crypto is a bad play um, for payments. And, you know, users just don't, they don't want to go through any of the hassle there. Let's, you know, honestly, in, in a Web2 world, they get access to PayPal, they can just use their Visa or MasterCard, and they get a lot more protections that way, right? If I'm running a, a business and I have to convert a bunch of my fiat to crypto, and now I'm paying for services in crypto. What guarantees does my business have, um, you know, especially operating above the board? So um, as, as much as it pains me to say, um, you know, starting to see that the consumer side of it definitely isn't consumer focused or ready yet. Now, that doesn't mean that it won't happen. PayPal just launched its own, its own crypto coin and you can send and trade that crypto coin uh, to places like Coinbase uh, as well. So it's quite possible that eventually uh, a large fiat provider will have a much better on-ramp experience than we have now. But just to say that, that that payments is the problem is like really scratching the surface, especially when we talk about Web2 developers. Um, there is a large disparity in, in logging and instrumentation and how you debug and diagnose problems across the stack that would really keep a lot of these projects from going production ready. Um, there's security around locking in. So as, as difficult as it is to maintain a wallet for for money, now we've gotten kind of into this uh, paradigm and this, this, this residual pattern of logging the user in using a crypto wallet. Um, but then if your crypto wallet is lost or your keys are lost, and this is critical for your infrastructure of a company, what do, what do you do? Your apps are now lost. Um, how do you how do you change your DNS if you're using something like ENS or IPNS and they both rely on crypto keys and then your crypto key is is lost? Um, there's there's a lot of, I think, gaps that we haven't really solved uh, in the Web3 world that give many people pause for, for needing to come in or wanting to come in with a production ready app. 
Um, it's not just like the user experience of how easy it is to launch an app, but really once they once they get past developing an app and coming to the conclusion that the ecosystems just are not production ready. And I think that's one of the things that we've really been kind of fighting at Blocklist and working really hard concentrating on is how do we bring enough surface level to the user without um, ruining the entire system for everybody else? We obviously can't be super verbose and give a bunch of workload information, but they need to have telemetry between which nodes their stuff executed on where the client was at. And a lot of those things are, are more of the concerns that I hear from Web2 um, when they are questioning working in Web3. They'd love to use ZK, but all the ZK instances are really around blockchain. Um, could we could we come up with some that aren't blockchain uh, specific? So um, I, I think one of the things we'll see in the next two to, two to three years is really a focus on account abstraction leaking its way into all of the other portions of a blockchain so that it can be controlled by a third party um, without ever really needing to worry about your keys or something specific being lost forever and never getting back to, to being on top again. Question for you in terms of uh, so the regulatory environment and how that's all changing on a, on a frequent basis. As a, as a person <laughs> operating a, or involved in a crypto startup, you know, it's, um, there's, there's signs of improvement in the U.S. There's been challenges in the U.S. Other you know, geographies are changing. Do you have any opinion about, um, you know, for other crypto startups, is the U.S. still a good place to get started? Do you have any other opinions about how, like, how it's changing? Have you, have you thought about doing work in other places to kind of deal with that? How are you feeling about how it's all evolving? So I think, um, you know, I would have I would have said if you asked me maybe two or three months ago, I would have I would have probably said, you know, it's going OK. I don't think there is a lot of problems. Um, but at the end of August, the federal government filed charges against Tornado Cash mm -hmm. again. Um, and, you know, what that really means for us is is engineers and invent inventors, innovators, um, we cannot just randomly create invention without worrying about what the ramifications at the end would be. Um, because unfortunately, even though we're not the end user and we're not the person who's doing uh, the nefarious or black market acts, um, it does appear that, that the government is going to hold us accountable uh, for those networks that do exist and the code that was created to make them exist. Um, so, you know, it's, it's kind of a touchy question when it comes down to it, is crypto okay? So, so crypto as coins and crypto as, as a means of, of funding your projects still seem to be like very sound. They seem to be a pretty good in, way to go. Um, you know, we haven't seen that, that the regulations are cracking down on calling them all securities. And, and if you're smart enough about your language and you're treating them as, as a non-security, it doesn't seem to be that it's, it's going to, you know, the cliff is going to come down. Um, but when we do start to look at some of the uses and the use cases and a lot of the things that crypto and cryptography and the blockchain space are really good at, which is allowing people to interact with each other without ever having prefaced before, um, you know, those seem to be being challenged a lot in regulatory environments. Um, and, I, and I don't doubt that we'll see the EU pick it up, too, as as data starts to be put on the chain. Um, they're very stringent on GDPR and the right to be forgotten. Um, and we'll have to have answers for those as well. So I don't know that there's any real perfect place to do a, a blockchain startup, um, but uh, America, unfortunately, probably isn't isn't number one uh, in a lot of people's minds. So, 
it's definitely an interesting sort of evolution of whatever it means to have like freedom of speech because at one point code was protected from freedom of speech and then like with the tornado cash challenge it was sort of determined that that version of code that was deployed to the ethereum blockchain was uh subject to sanctions in, in this case and so you know we're all you know more or less involved whether it's physical infrastructure that we're building for file storage or for computation and things like that it's interesting to see how that will play out in the future as well like uh, you know, if, if I post to social media, Twitter has some, you know, um, uh, what do you call it? Like, uh, they're, they're not they're not responsible for whatever I post. They're just sort of a, a commons project. So it'd be interesting to see as like decentralized infrastructure comes to comes to being, you know, does the infrastructure project itself, are they also not responsible for the things that folks do on those infrastructure projects? What's interesting about that is we've we've seen that regulation change now as well. There are bills floating through um dc now to make those companies um actually liable for the content they leave on their networks mm. um there's a, a big campaign called take it down now um, which is fighting csam um and and the goal of that is that twitter and facebook uh, google they will be monetarily responsible uh for leaving that content on their system and no longer will it just be a user problem so um, we are we are seeing a big swing in in the regulation heading towards um, you know cracking down on tech companies themselves. No, you're right. In the UK, they just passed a similar sort of uh, bill to to basically like um, there was like disinformation is a certain type of speech that's going to be monitored in social media mm -hmm. account companies EU rather uh, part of it just got passed as well. So I agree, it's an interesting sort of changing landscape. It's it's always ebbs and flows, but uh, it's it's kind of really interesting just to see, um, you know, if, if we in the tech industry don't have the ability to actually take uh, the lead and, and the precedence on fighting these things within our own networks, um, you know, basically what will happen is the government will come in and, and regulate. And we've, we've seen it, unfortunately, that uh, the slow response, having the protection of not being responsible for what your users post um, does kind of prohibit a lot of these companies from moving too fast because they're also worried about legislation and literature. Uh, excuse me. They're worried about litigation on the other side. Um, if they, you know, act with a strong hand, they're opening themselves up to a, a civil lawsuit uh, somewhere else as well. So it'll be interesting just to see the government kind of come out with clear language on some of these landscapes that we haven't been able to to make leeway in, especially when we, we work on, you know, again, distributed, anonymizing, decentralized tech. Derek, have you seen any changes in the economic side of crypto companies in the past few months, particularly like funding, startups and those sorts of things? Like, are you seeing any, any uh, signs of change from the VC groups? Obviously, we saw Bitcoin took a big bump. Uh, up in price with the uh, Bitcoin ETF rumors recently. So there's like signs of life of, of leaving the bear market. Are you seeing how was the market looking from your perspective? Yeah, I think there's still a lot of money in the market. People are still super cautious about where they're putting that money. And I think a lot of what's happening right now is we're seeing Bitcoin uh, kind of start to pick up because usually at the beginning of, of any bull run will be a stockpile. And so people are starting to, to build war chests. Uh, the coin is low, low enough that it's worth putting into a portfolio or holding on to. Um, and I think once we probably see Bitcoin start to top out of, you know, that 40 or 50,000 uh, mark again, we'll probably start to see a big infusion into, uh, into the crypto Web3 capital world 
again. So it's not that there isn't any money out there. It's just that I think the VCs are being really skeptical about writing checks. Everybody's moved on to generative AI uh, as well as a big play. So a lot of that check writing is happening in that market right now. Um, but really just kind of, you know, hold tight and, and wait till Bitcoin comes back up. It's a good indicator that it's being held because to me, it means that a lot of these portfolio companies are diversifying in something that they'll eventually dole out um, once they figure out exactly where to put the capital. I think they're just waiting for the capital market to rebound and it, it's going to follow in lockstep. I think the Fed, the U.S. Fed is, is looking at clamping down by the end of the year, still another half percent. Um, so, you know, depending on what moves they make could all, all alter that as well. Could be why a lot of people are jumping into Bitcoin right now, too, as the Fed rates continue to slide up. Do you think the fact that the financialization of crypto is, I mean, like, you know, is basically always revolves around uh, the, the price of the token? Um, obviously, there's some upside to it where, like, there's liquidity earlier uh, and people can, you know, trade and um, kind of build applications, especially in finance, that, that are really strong. But do you think it, like, limits upside because, like, Essentially, the industry is focused on the token price and not the fundamentals of the business and the value add. Absolutely. I've you know, always been a, a protagonist of the line that TVL is not revenue. Um, and, and I think that's a big thing that a lot of, a lot of teams are kind of coming to the conclusion now, um, especially as this bear market kind of really drags out very high TVL teams uh, at one point um, are now, you know, closing their doors and, and no longer developing. Um, I just read, I, I totally forget and I, I, you know, passing on the name, um, but given two networks, um, Ethereum or Solana, um, you know, Ethereum holds 75% of your revenue as a network. So do you even operate in a place like Solana? And it doesn't make financial sense for you as a team or a company to operate in both Ethereum and Solana. And if it doesn't, then we're already looking at the Solana ecosystem kind of taking a drag, um, you know, and all of all of that was really built on TVL. It wasn't built on revenue generating transactions. Um, we've also got this problem now where we've left proof of work behind because we thought proof of work was really wasteful and, you know, the energy factor was bad. And so we got everything on proof of stake. But really what you see with proof of stake is it's proof of holding, right? Because nobody really ever wants to do any kind of transactional commerce in a proof of stake coin. You just want to hold it and sit it. And if you hold and sit, then the company never actually does any commerce in there. So it's very frequent that you'll go and look at a Cosmos coin that'll have one to two, maybe three billion of TVL. And they're generating 300 to to $1,000 of revenue-based transactions a month. Um, that's that's not sustainable at all. I think a, a lot of teams are going to start coming to these conclusions. Um, and, and as much as I like the multi-app chain thesis, um, leaning towards restaking collectives like Eigenlayer um, really kind of makes sense in terms of keeping coin inside of a single network. Um, just because, again, parties can't economically operate on multiple networks and spread their capital that thin if there aren't going to be returns and if all you're doing is holding while a, while a project kind of dwindles and never makes headway, um, you know, you're kind of the VC at, at that point that that just threw your money into something and you never got anything back. Um, and then that's really that's really where I kind of see we need to work really hard. So blockless, we don't have a token network. Um, you know, we're looking at what what it would mean for us to do a token network. 
Um, but we generally always come back to the same, like launching a token on an established network if somebody wants to provide that kind of liquidity to your your team. Um, but in terms of standing up a network that'll never have uh, a revenue based on a transactional model, doesn't really do anybody any good at the end of the day, especially the investors when they're looking at getting some kind of cash back out of the business. Then you're really just looking at milking your customers for some kind of $4.99, $9.99, uh, you know, a month plan. Um, and all the SaaSes have, have done that these days. So I'm pretty sure just like we're all getting tired of Netflix and Hulu and Disney Plus and another streaming service and another streaming service, um, you're not going to want to pay $4.99 to $9.99 every month for a single SaaS subscription. It's a good point because, I mean, token launches come with it, uh, a certain amount of overhead, you know, legally, complex, complexity and all these other aspects. So if, if a project does not want to launch their own token, is the next best solution to say we're going to take a fee out of maybe the protocol and that fee is going to go to the nonprofit or the treasury or something like that? Are there any other alternatives that you recommend for folks to take a look at? Yeah, you know, if you don't want to just take uh, a revenue, doing a, a fee-based system is definitely nice, but it's also kind of hard to swallow for maybe the uh, software that's going to be built on the network. So the one thing that we need to be really kind of cognizant about right now is that we're all building on popsicle sticks. And if you're going to try to get network-based revenue, you have to ensure that there's an escape hatch uh, for that project that's going to build on you. Um, really a, a lot of apprehension from uh, founders to kind of go and build on a, on a side network is what happens when the network disappears? What happens when your team no longer has funding? Um, where does my where does my dApp go? Where does it exist? And we've kind of seen that shift from from Juno to Solana, um, you know, as well. And a lot of teams scrambling to move um, from one complementary system um, to another. So, really, kind of the the moat is is be kind to these other systems and make sure you're building so that they can leave you at any time. It really gives them a lot more confidence that you're going to be there for them. Um, in the long run, because you're not you're not trying to hold them to you know programming in your single uh, language that works only on your network and only for your validator set and yeah that's that's where I see a lot of kind of you know just be kind to the other projects nobody nobody wants to get stuck leave some ladders I like it it's a good plan yeah well this is. All the, all the topics I had, Ishan, anything else from your side? Yeah, I had a couple questions. So one, I saw a tweet of yours that I really liked. Um, engineering teams are not sports teams. Stop trying to make them fit. Um, yeah. Oh, my I, God. Yeah. As a person who Absolutely. played sports and built an engineering team, I'd love to hear, you know, I, I felt like I mostly agreed and partly disagreed with that tweet, but I wasn't sure where because it, it was uh, one tweet. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on, on that uh, and and why you why you treated that for sure. So so I think a lot of a lot of engineering groups tend to think of themselves as sports teams because they don't want to be families, right? So like you you the reality is people get fired, they leave, they find better jobs. Um, you know we're not all in it uh, just to be copacetic with each other. Um, so I see a, a big trend of a lot of engineering. Uh, orgs uh, kind of moving towards, well, we're trying to build a sports team, an all-star sports team. But but the reality is, if you look at an all-star sports team, to be a winning all-star sports team, you only need three people. Everybody else is is holding a spot on the field because that's what the regulation requires them to do. But, but really, any major league sports team that has a pennant 
has really only had three or four people that have driven the team all the way to the end. So I don't really like the analogy that we're building a sports team because I'm not looking for one guy to carry the weight while seven other guys, you know, wait for them to pass the ball uh, to the one guy. I really feel that if we're going to talk about, you know, sports team, we should probably be talking about non, uh, you know, big sports teams. Like when's the last time you uh, you looked at a, a robo team and you idolized the, the synchrony uh, of a robo team? One person can't row off course or it throws the whole team off. And so you're looking for an entire bench of top players um, at that point. And so, you know, that's really kind of where I come to that is, is I kind of feel when I'm talking to people that they want all stars, they want ninjas. Um, but you really need, you know, an entire group of consistent, well thought out people um, that perform and come to work every day liking what they do. Um, you just can't have one or two and then a bunch of people that are kind of drudged along the course because it's what they found. Yeah, it makes sense. I, I, the part that I agreed with was that was that like, you know, take basketball, for example, right? You can put uh, a bunch of above average players or average players next to LeBron James and he can basically get you to the, to the NBA finals by himself. Right. Absolutely. Uh, Absolutely. On the other yeah. hand, I, I felt the one part that I just didn't agree with is that like sports teams, the reason why there's only one LeBron James on a team or why, you know, you don't see all the all stars, even in football or basketball or ice hockey, all on the same team is because there's a draft, there's contracts that people can't leave. And also there's a salary cap, right? Companies can just if you could afford, you could just have 500 LeBron James all on the same team. And like, it wouldn't be an issue. So um, I feel like it's, it's a little extreme position to take uh, on, on my side. But I felt that like, yeah, well, if, if, if you could afford the, you know, the like Google, right? I don't know. I wouldn't say that maybe Google has all the best engineers anymore, but they try to, you know, let's say hire the top 5% of the engineers that, it, you know, that, that, uh, that at least they can get. And then they pay them a lot of money, right? Um, and maybe, you know, the ads business is so good that all of it doesn't matter. But, um, but yeah, that's kind of, I was, I was really curious just to hear what your thoughts are on that because it really resonated with me. Yeah, for sure. You know, and I always think back to Apple too. Um, you know, we could, we could say that the Apple iPhone 2007, the original iPhone team was probably the top engineering team in the world at the time. And they couldn't get a second job mm -hmm. after Apple. Um, you know, so it's, it's, it's kind of ebbs and flows, you know, as to what happens to your team after you're done engineering, are you so stellar that you can't work together anymore because you're just, you're that, you're that good. No other, like, kind of like you said, a company of all LeBron James's, um, it just can't happen. You know, and obviously Steve jobs is another mm -hmm. reason why they couldn't work together, but, um, you know, just being so good as a team at, at some point, somebody wants to break you up. Very yeah. cool. Yeah. I, I was super, super, uh, ex interested in that. The other question I had to end is, um, you know, for you, where do you kind of, um, where do you think of like, uh, what should be decentralized and what should be not? Where do you think decentralization, blockchain and cryptocurrency can, uh, make the most improvements in like businesses or consumers, life is in terms of a product and where do you think it's just like it is a vitamin and not and doesn't really solve a problem yeah for sure so I, I think definitely where it makes more sense to be decentralized is at the the user at the consumer themselves i think we're spending a lot of time decentralizing services and that's why we see something like you know you only need a 70 or 100 validator set 
um, but it doesn't really solve a lot of compute problems or a lot of problems for users at all. And so I, I think we're starting to see a bigger shift towards minimal knowledge chains uh, that fit within a specific consumer size so that we can start pushing more distribution towards the consumer system. Um, if you think about a typical American town, they're about 17,000 people and they have about 75 miles in between each other with the nearest city center being about 250 miles apart. Um, and so that's a lot of distance when you think about the, the amount of technology that needs to be strung in between. Um, a small town where I'm from in South Dakota could never do video game streaming, even though it, it works maybe once or twice uh, when you try it and it's okay. Um, it's just not reliable enough, even with a 20 millisecond ping, because there are no servers within 300 miles um, of any major city, even in this state. And so really, I see decentralization, what I like to call them as compute lakes, um, you know, starting to form where um, we could go in and actually have isolated instances of data centers um, that are there to serve a specific municipality. Um, there's a few companies also working with IoT on the edge uh, in the actual doing the data at the edge, uh, combing it down, filtering it and sending it back to the user. Um, but I, I do see that that's probably where a lot more of our time should be spent. Um, there's a local first web movement now popping up um, because the web two people don't feel that the web three people have actually done this. Um, so there's an entire under movement I think that's coming um, as well as, as people wanna move uh, more towards the user. And, and really it, it isn't just, you know, the user's benefit uh, straight, but even as a company, you have regulations that we were talking about. Uh, a lot of those problems are also covered and, and accomplished with moving compute closer to the, the user, sending the distributions closer to the user. Turkey uh, as, a or as a country, for instance, doesn't allow any digital commerce inside of the country that isn't served from the country itself. So you can't even, you know, do a payment mechanism unless you have servers that are set up in Turkey um, and really solving a problem like that just means moving your compute that much closer to the user. Um, hopefully we'll, we'll continue to see those kind of those things move. Um, Polymer Labs, for instance, is working on an IBC client that will no longer require IBC participation. So all chains will just be interconnected between each other. Um, in, in really starting to cut out middlemen or actors that need to be there for people to, to consume, really just getting more closer to the consumer again. Very well, well said. Thank you. Thank you, Derek. No. And, and before we wrap, what should folks do if they want to get involved in the blockless community? They want to test that out. What kind of things can we uh, direct them to take a look at? Yeah, absolutely. So the first is obviously our website, pretty easy, blockless.network. Um, just head on over there. It's got links to everything, our documentation, but then also follow us on Twitter, the Blockless Network. Um, we're on we're on Twitter as well. We have a Discord, um, and you can hop in and chat with us there or on our Telegram. I would recommend probably the Discord is a lot more sane uh, than than multi hundred person person uh, Telegram groups. If you don't like your phone going off at all hours of the night, there's a lot of groups to mute, uh, for instance, but Discord is pretty pretty straight. Um, yeah, absolutely. Twitter, Discord, our website, blocklist.network. Um, we're also available via email if you want to go the slow route. For I some love it. Hey, some people still need email, you know? It's like... Uh, that They do. People I like get... it. Yeah. I just saw a new uh, RSS reader. That's an email client. It so, works. Down, yeah. down, downtime is very good. It Uptime works. is very good on email. Mm -hmm. What are you gonna do? Yeah, uptime is good. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> a lot of redundancy. It's a distributed network that uh, hasn't failed us. <laughs> yeah, 
yeah so even after how many years has sfmtp been been alive right, right? like just yep that's crazy that could be the next billion dollar idea is sean is crypto incentivized smtp let's put it on the list <laughs> there you go there you go all right we can wrap here derek thanks so much for taking your time cool. man thank you so much it's been great absolutely right. see ya have a good week cheers